Chapter 48 of The Gray Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Gray Man by S.R. Crockett. Chapter 48 The Finding of the Treasure of Kelwood. When I came to myself, the cave was filled with armed men and the confused clamor of voices. The torches spluttered and reeked, and I could feel that my naked body was covered with a woman's cloak wrapped well about me. Someone was binding up my head, and as she examined to see if all had been rightly done, I saw that it was Nell Kennedy, so I called her softly by her name. But she bade me not try to rise, and looked again to my head to see that it had no serious wound. Then came John the Earl and asked how I did. Whereupon, minding, as is my wont, to have old time by the forelock, I spoke of his promise. Here, I said, is the murderer of John Muir. Here is the gang of monsters, and now I will put you in the way of obtaining the treasure of Kelwood, if you will fulfill the promise which you made to me. What was that? he said shortly. For though Earl John liked promising well enough, he was not so fond of performing if it cost him aught, as in this case it was like to do. My sweetheart here, my knighthood, and a suitable down-sitting of land, said I, knowing that it was now or never with me. Then he demurred a little, and hesitated, so that for a moment I thought all was lost. Your sweetheart you shall have, he said at last, but the others are not in my gift, save a holding of land, perhaps, which I can let you for a trifling return, when it falls vacant. And so rejoiced was I to think of getting my last, that I might have consented to this. But Nell was behind me, and upon pretense of arranging a knot of the bandage upon my forehead, she whispered in my ear, Threat him with telling the king about the treasure. So knowing her wisdom, I obeyed her. Well then, Earl John, said I, if that be so, and a knighthood and suitable heritages are not in your power to bestow, here at hand is the king. Give me leave to speak with him. He is fond of treasure, and I can put a brave one under his hand. Hush, said the earl, looking about him with apprehension, for the king was yet in the place with Mar and Lennox, ordering the taking down and burying of the strange white narrow-shaped hams and the other things that turned the gay squeamish folk that came with him pale and sick only to look upon them. Hush, he said again, above all things beware what you say to the king. Show the Kelwood treasure to myself alone, and you shall have Barhill, I, and all Minnock's side from the rowan tree to the forks of Trule, and I will even speak to the king about the knighting. Will your lordship please to declare it before witnesses, said I, Nell prompting me as before, for my head was dazed, but hers was singularly clear. So he called to him certain honourable men of his name, and promised faithfully. Are you content, said he? So I said, Nelly, show them the treasure. Here is the key. And she rose and took them to the box, which by the blessing of God remained still where we had left it in the recess, and she fitted the key in the lock, and it turned without a sound. And there the earl bathed his hands in the set jewels, the loose stones of price, and the coined golden money, plashing them through his fingers with a sound like a spout of water, till for fear of the king I advised him to close it again. It is worth the bargain, said he, though I am sorry to have promised away fair Minnockside. I trow it was woman's wit that guided you in the asking, and not that thick bandaged headpiece of thine, Lancelot Kennedy. But I answered not, knowing how to leave well alone, when a man is pleased with himself. So the earl placed Robert Harburg to guard the chest, 
and to lie discreetly concerning it if any of the king's men should come near, saying that it was but some foulness appropriate to the den. But none came asking, and thus was the treasure of Kelwood conquest for ever to the family of Cassillis. As for Sawney Bean's monstrous brood, is it not recorded how they were carried through the country to Edinburgh, and as how they went the folk flocked in from leagues away to see and execrate them? They were hurried straight to the sands of Leith, where, without process of trial or pleading, and in the manner prescribed for such fiends, they were executed out of hand as enemies to the human race in general. Thus, mainly through my instrumentality, was the country rid of a monstrous foul blot, such as no land since the flood has ever been cursed with. Though I deny not that Dominie Muir and Nell Kennedy helped well according to their possibles, yet the most part of the credit was rightly given to me, who had twice adventured my life within the cave of death, though as I admit on both occasions against my will. Once more the city of Edinburgh swarmed with Kennedys, come thither to the great trial. There had not been so great a concurrence of Westland folk in Edinburgh since the memorable day when young Gilbert of Bargany cleared the causeway of us of the house of Cassillis, for which afterwards we were one and all put to the horn, to our great and lasting honour, as hath been related. At the west port I met Patrick Rippet, he who had taunted Benane at the Mabel snowballing. Whither is your eye gone? I asked him, for he had a black patch where his left eye should have been. A faust loon piked it out and offered it me back on the end of his rapier, said Patrick Rippet with the utmost unconcern. And what said ye to him? I asked of Patrick, because he was not a man to take a jest, and such a jest, for nothing. Faith, I just bartered him fair. I offered him his heart on the point of mine, said Rippet, and so strolled away, ogling the snooded maids at the windows of the highlands as best he could, with the one wicked orb which was left to him. I was walking with my father at the time. He had ridden the long way from Kerioch on a white pony, all to pleasure my mother. Ye mon gang and hear the laddie gee his evidence, she bade him. They will fright him to deed else, among the Edinburgh men of the law. They are no canny. So long as Lance gets striking at them with the steel, I ken he is safe and sound, for his hand can ye and keep his head, as a Kennedy's ever should. But wa kens what they may do to my laddie when he stands afore the justicers, and the lawyer loons come at him with their quips and quandaries. Faith then, good wife, said my father, ye shall come too, and thou and I shall ride to Edinburgh like Joes that are newly wed. And though at first she denied, yet at the last she consented, well pleased enough, having a desire to purchase garmentry more suitable for the wife of a laird and the mother of one who was to be made a knight. When my mother went out for the first time, she held up her hands and exclaimed at the noise and bustle of the high street, the soldiers who were forever marching to and fro in companies with drums and pipes, the lasses that went hither and thither with a shawl about their heads, and bandied compliments, and such compliments, with swashbucklers and rantipole prentice lads. The limmers they need soundly scalping, said my mother, for ah that they carry their heads so high, and their kirtles higher than their heads. Surely scantly that, said my father. But I, continued my mother, not heeding him in her press of speech, such hair-brained hempies wad be dooket in the limmers dub on Saturday in every decent country, and set on the black stool of repentance ilka Sabbath day. I wonder what the king and the ministers o' Edinburgh can be thinking o'. There was, however, for most of us, a long and weary waiting, ere in the town of Edinburgh the High Court of Justiciary was ripe for the hearing of the case against the Muirs. But when at last the great day came, the whole West Country was there. This is a footnote. Sir Launcelot Kennedy of Palgowan and Kirioch, 
appears somewhat to have confused the dates of the first and second trials of John Muir of Auchendrayne. Indeed, weakness in exact chronology is common to his record and to the contemporary history of the Kennedys, which was written about the same time by a partisan of the other side, it may even be by John Muir of Auchendrayne himself. And though many a face was joyous as were ours, eke many were sad and lowering. For it is strange that some ill men should have some to love them, or at least so it was with John Muir the Elder. And so there were in the city Muirs by the score, fighting black-avised McCarrows, cankered Crawfords, with all the disbanded Bargany discontents from the south of Carrick, Drummurky's broken band from the hill lands of Bar, together with many others. So that we kept our swords, as at our first visit to the town in the days of Gilbert Kennedy, free in their scabbards while we ruffled it along the pavement. And I mind what my mother said, the first time she went down the plainstones with me. We met young Anthony Kennedy of Benane, and I perceived that it was his intent to take the wall of me. So I squared myself and went a little before with my hand on my rapier hilt and my elbows wide, also cocking fiercely my bonnet over my eye, which assurance feared Kennedy so greatly that he meekly took the pavement edge, and I went by with my mother on my arm, having, as I thought, come off very well in the matter. But my mother stood stock still in amazement. Laddie, laddie, I kenned na what had taken ye. Ye prinked in passage for all the world like our bantam cock at Curioch when he hears his neighbour at Kirimore craw on the prime of the morn. Gin ye gang on that gate, ye will get your cane buried and scarted, my lad. So listen your old mither, and walk mare humbly. At this I was somewhat shamed, and dropped behind like a little whipped messin, for my mother has a brisk tongue. My father said not a word, but there was a look of dry humorsomeness upon his face which I knew and feared more than my mother's clip-wit tongue. End of chapter 48